This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right, first two verses of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Morning, church. Hey, that's better. They woke up a little bit, Jamie. They just... They just didn't want to hear your voice, apparently. <laughs> just kidding. All right. Uh, in building, it's really important to get your foundation right. You can build the coolest looking, most beautiful building, and if the foundation is wrong, uh, you get into trouble really, really quickly. The most famous example of this is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You see that it leans. They didn't do that on purpose. The foundation settled, and now it's all pointed in the wrong trajectory. It's supposed to be straight up and down. It is not. Uh, But there are even worse fails with foundations in history. Uh, There was an amphitheater erected in Fidene, Italy, uh, and it was erected by a guy named Artilius. And Artilius decided that he wanted to build a gladiator arena to make money. And because he was trying to make money, he went for quicker and cheaper and not better. And the foundation failed. The first event that they ever had in the stadium, there was 50,000 people came and 20,000 of them died. Because the foundation crumbled as they filled the stadium. That's not good. Our foundation matters. The foundation of a structure matters for sure, but the foundation of our theology matters even more. Eternal life and death are at stake with the foundation of our theology. So when we ask the question, why are we jumping into a study in the book of Genesis and pairing that with Romans and going back and forth between the two, the foundation of our theology, theology is the main reason that we are going to do a journey through Genesis and Romans that will last, well, Acts was two years. Genesis has 50 chapters and Romans another 16. You do the math. We'll be here a while. It's okay, though. It's going to be a good journey. We're also more and more aware as elders that less and less churches are fired up to teach theology. I mean, really deep theology and help people understand who God really is and why that should impact the way that they live. And so we are aware that that might be you. You may have grown up in the church all along and still not have some basic fundamental grounding in your theology. And even if you do, we're just going to solidify that foundation even more because theology impacts our eternity. Our beliefs about God impact the way that we live and function each and every day of our life. Whether you know that or not, your theology changes the way that you live. You will interact with the world in such a way this week that is based on what you think about God ultimately. My belief about God impacts the way I think and live and feel. Theology is not just an intellectual exercise. It is insanely practical. And so that's why we are going on this journey. That's why we are taking this new study to ground ourselves in the theology of God to ground ourselves so that we can live more satisfied in the God of the universe. 
So that's why. But how is also important. How we approach scripture is always important, but it's even more important when the foundation of how you study a specific book is under attack, and that is surely true of the book of Genesis. Let me tell you what I mean. There are people who say that Adam and Eve weren't real people. There was no Garden of Eden. There was no real flood. There was no Tower of Babel, on and on and on and on and on. Their philosophy is that Genesis must be what's called allegory. Merriam-Webster defines allegory this way, the expression by means of symbolic fictional figures and actions of truths or generalizations about human existence. Surely the book of Genesis must just be a bunch of stories that are designed to tell us about God. They didn't actually happen in reality. The problem is that's not how it reads. That's not what the words, when put together, mean. But we want to say, there's no way God could have created the world in seven days. Like that, that just seems impossible. What I observe and see in the world doesn't seem to fit that well. There's no way there could have been a worldwide flood. Maybe it was just like a local flood or just a story about a flood. But here's the main problem with that approach. Those people start with their understanding of things, and then they try to put God in their box. Instead of saying, God has said, now how does my understanding fit into what God has said? Because God is the author of truth. God is the ultimate authority on everything. It's dangerous to approach Scripture to bring our preconceived ideas to Scripture as we seek to study Now, we all do that to some degree. We all have our presuppositions that we bring, our our things that we understand of the world that we try to put on the text whether we realize it or not. And our job as interpreters of Scripture is to try to minimize what those things are and to make them the right things. If we approach Scripture and say there is no God, that's a problem. We should have the presupposition that there is a God and that the words that he says are true. Those things are helpful presuppositions as we approach scripture. But there are other things that detract from our understanding of what the text actually says. And since God is the author of scripture, we need to approach scripture with the heart of understanding who God is. It's what we call a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. And you're like, hermoa? Hermeneutic is just a a big fancy word that means the art and science of biblical interpretation. What in the world does the Bible mean and how do we arrive at its meaning? Simply put, it's this. The original author had a reason he was writing to an original group of people in an original language that he was writing. Who he is, who he wrote to, and the words he used all matter to our understanding of Scripture. And let me say this very bluntly out of the gate for our study in the book of Genesis. If you attempt to understand the Hebrew language that Genesis was written in, in its historical grammatical context, you will not arrive at the fact that Genesis is allegory. The language does not lead you there. Your presuppositions might lead you there, but the language in its raw form will not lead you there. You will arrive at the fact that Genesis is meant to be a historical account, not exhaustive, but historical in the way that it approaches. There was literally an Adam and Eve. 
There was a worldwide flood. There was a tower that was built at Babel. And on and on and on. The language of Genesis requires it, and the foundation of the theology of the entire Bible requires it. Let me prove it to you. Let me show you just a couple of the connections of why we're excited to see Romans and Genesis play together. So if the fall of man isn't real in Genesis 3, then you may as well rip Romans 3 out of your Bible that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where did that sin happen? It happens in Genesis 3 with a real dude named Adam. If we don't interpret Adam as a real person in Genesis 1 through 3, we have really big problems when we get to Romans 5. Flip over to Romans 5 for a minute. I want to show you this. Romans 5, starting in verse 12, says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If Adam isn't a real dude who really sinned in a garden, your salvation is in trouble. Because of the sin of one man, sin entered the world, but that allowed the sacrifice of one man to apply his righteous living, his sacrifice to your account. Your salvation matters in Romans 3, or in Genesis 3, sorry. Genesis 127, flip back there. Show you one more example of what we're talking about. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Romans 1, verse 25, says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's, it's God's condemnation of some of the sins that fly in the face of Genesis 1.27. It's at the heart of the gender discussion, the race discussion, the marriage discussion. Genesis 1.27 is the hinge point for all of that. We are made in the image of God, and thus he defines all of those things. No image of God, no foundation for our understanding of a right view of marriage and sexuality and race. That's all contained in Genesis 1. 
Genesis is the beginning of our Bibles. It is also the foundation for our theology. Let me say it clearly to you this morning. The book of Genesis is 100% necessary to the unfolding story of the gospel. No Genesis, no salvation. That's what's at stake. We got to stand firm on the truth that Genesis teaches. Because these are the truths that are at stake. It's our salvation. It's our eternity. That's where we are. One thing has to be true. I want this to be blatantly clear at where we're going in this study. The book of Genesis must be interpreted as Hebrew history. It's got to be that way. If not, we will get into major trouble. So this is how we're going to approach the book of Genesis. We're going to approach it as a historical book written by a guy named Moses, who also wrote four other books with it, making a total of five. that are the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Adam and Eve were real people in a real garden. A real flood happened, and a real tower named Babel was built, and that is the lens which we are going to view this book, because that is the lens with which the language requires us to view it. Get it? Clear? All right. That was all just introduction. So are you ready to actually dive in and actually look at the book of Genesis this morning? Three, we're going to look at three whole Hebrew words this morning. Three whole Hebrew words, which is five words in your Bible. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning is just one word in the Hebrew, and then God created. So let's look at three things that we learn about God. Three things that we learn about God from these three Hebrew words. The first is this. God is eternal. God is eternal. In the beginning. How was God at the beginning? He, he was at the beginning because he had to be there before the beginning. So, someone had to eternally exist. Something had to eternally exist. And God existed first. He, he didn't just exist first. He has always existed for all of time. In fact, he existed before there was even time. And that might be breaking some of your brains. And I say, good. Because I want God to be that big in your mind that you're like, I, I can't wrap my head around the fact that God never had a beginning and he never will have an end. And what in the world does that look like? But we know, even just logically thinking, something had to be at the beginning. Something had to be eternal. Even the Big Bang Theory says that there had to be some sort of matter, something that existed from eternity past because otherwise, how would it explode into all that we see? I don't agree with that thinking for the record, but even they say there had to be something that's eternal. That eternal thing is God. He has always existed. Something had to be the first cause, and it was God. God existed first, and God has no time. He has no time. Physics tells us that matter, time, and space must all occur together. No matter, no space, no time. So logically, then, we could say that before God created, there was no time. At least not like we think of time in a succession of moments. Time does not have existence by itself. Time depends on an eternal God to make it exist. All of time is contained within God. 
God operates in time for us, but he exists outside of time. Let let me prove to you biblically what I mean. Look at Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, or 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God sees everything in the eternal right now. So everything that has happened, past, present, and future, God is seeing right now, and right now, and right now, and right now, over and over and over. God sees it all happening at the same time. Wayne Grudem says this about those two verses that we just read. He says, we can say the following, in God's perspective, any extremely long period of time is as if it just happened. And any very short period of time, such as one day, seems to God to last forever. So God isn't just sitting around in heaven saying, man, I really hope this time thing comes to an end soon so that I can come back and just fix all of this mess. No, no. His experience of time is completely and utterly different than anything that we experience because he exists outside of time. Time exists within him. You're all like... What? Uh, Grudem, uh, Wayne Grudem helps probably us get as close as we can with this illustration that he gives talking about vividness. So over time, my memory fades. Some of you, your memory fades quicker than others. But shortly removed from an event, I remember a lot of details about the event. But as it gets farther and farther in the rearview mirror, those details become less and less vivid. I start to lose things. Let me give you an example. So 53 days after Angela and I were married, we got robbed. Our apartment was ransacked, and virtually everything of value was stolen from our apartment. And for weeks after that event, I could walk through that apartment in my brain and basically tell you where everything was kind of laid. I could give you a detailed list of basically everything that had been stolen. I could go into intimate detail about those. It was a traumatic event for us. It was a major life-altering thing. But now, almost 16 years later, it's not quite as vivid. I, I can still see images of it in my brain. I can tell you a few important things that I remember losing, but I surely can't tell you a detailed list of it all. I, I mean, why does anyone have more kids than one? <laughs> the vividness of newborn stage fades, obviously. I mean, 12 months it took Tobias to sleep through the night on his own, and yet Eli still exists. That, that is a proof that our vividness falls. I mean, sometimes I forget what I ate for dinner last night, let alone the vividness of every memory of every day. But here's the amazing thing, not for God. Never. Not one time has he ever experienced a loss of vividness because it's all happening for him in the eternal right now. Except one thing that he chooses not to remember, which is your sin. He can still see it with vividness, but he chooses not to remember it. But he never loses a memory, it's never gone. 
Okay, so why in the world does all that matter? Yeah, God is really big and he thinks different than I do. I get it. But my question to you is, do you really get it? Because I'm over here saying, yeah, God, I've got this. Don't worry about me over here. I'm going to rock this thing out. I understand it. I'll get my head wrapped around it. I'll make it better. Or sometimes I sit there saying, God, what in the world are you doing in this situation? Do you know what you're doing in this situation? And I'm pretty sure I'm probably not alone in having some of those thoughts, that many of you or all of you have those thoughts all the time. But if God sees everything all the time, and if that's always been the case, and will always be the case for all of eternity, don't you think that should probably impact our ability to trust him? I mean, he sees it all right now. There, there's no question mark of the future. He sees it vividly right now in this moment. He literally is holding time itself together, and yet sometimes I'm over here questioning his timing. Who should I trust? The God who has always existed and knows no time and sees that all with clarity of detail and vividness? Or should I trust a bunch of people who prove that given the first choice, they failed? Or myself and my understanding, and I fail. But yet we put our trust in ourselves way more than we put our trust in a God who's worthy of it, who's actually able to hold the weight of it. This is all contained in the beginning. God was eternal, He's always existed. Theology matters, it impacts your tomorrow, church. How you trust God will change the way that you live this week. If you trust him fully, it will look vastly different than if you doubt him. Theology matters. Three things we learn about God from these three Hebrew words. The first is God is eternal. The second is God is self-existent. God is self-existent. Do you know that God needs nothing? He needs no one. Before the creation of the world, he was perfectly content in and of himself. He had all he needed to be 100% satisfied for all of eternity. God didn't create the world because he was bored. He, he didn't create the world because he needed something from humanity. Look at Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is not served by us as if he needs anything. He has no need. We are totally 100% dependent on him, but he has no need. He has never had to go to the grocery store or back to the grocery store because he forgot the thing he was supposed to get the first time at the grocery store. He never struggles with feeling comfortable. He never struggles with feeling love. He has zero need at all. None. So that's, that's a lot of theology, a lot of teaching, a lot of deep thinking. But I want to draw it together with this last conclusion, this last thing we learn about God. God is eternal. He is self-existent. God is personal. God is personal. Every step 
to you having a relationship with God, God took. Every single one. He created you. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to create you. He didn't need to. You aren't somehow adding something to God. For sure, we get a chance to glorify him, but if you crush it tomorrow, it's not going to make God more valuable. Just like if you fail miserably this week, it's not going to detract anything from God. He is 100% self-existence. He values you not because he needs you. He values you because he wants to value you. We have value not because we're amazing. We have value because God, in his infinite wisdom, chooses to assign value to us. You aren't loved because you're lovable. You're loved because he wants to love you. We don't inherently bring anything to God because he doesn't inherently need anything. Church, this is the essence of grace. It's unmerited favor. Getting something that we don't deserve. We don't even deserve to be breathing the air that we're breathing, and yet God created us, even though he didn't need it. Every step to you having a relationship with God, God took. He created you. He fixed what we broke. He sent Jesus. We didn't ask for Jesus. We didn't sit around planning, man, I wonder if he sent his own son to die for us, what that would look like. We, we weren't smart enough to do that. He planned it. He sent Jesus. And God remembers the cross vividly. It's not just some past event like we tend to think about it. He doesn't experience placing the wrath of, uh, of his wrath on Jesus in the past. It's all vivid in the here and now. He remembers it intimately, what it feels like to place his wrath on his son. He experiences it all, all the time. And Jesus vividly knows the pain of the cross. He remembers the feeling of rejection. He remembers the weight of the sin that he bore with no passing detail, with no miss. And he knew it would be this way. He knew he would remember it for all eternity. He knew he would experience it for all eternity. And although he has no need of anything, he still chose to experience it for us vividly in detail of the pain and the sorrow and the rejection. He did that to fix what we broke, church. That is immense grace. Amazing, rich, deep, full grace. Every step to you having a relationship with God, God took. He created you. He fixed what we broke. And he awakened your heart to believe. We couldn't even believe in the cross on our own. The greatest truth ever told isn't compelling enough for you without the God of the universe making it compelling to you. Let me prove it to you. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
We're not walking around as people who are perishing saying, man, that cross looks amazing. No, it's folly. It's foolishness. How about this? Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What do dead people do, church? They do absolutely not a darn thing. They do nothing. They don't wake up. They don't believe. They're just dead. They just lay there like dead people do. But look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God awakened your heart to believe. You were dead, but God. He stirs your affections for Jesus. He gave you the ability to even see Jesus, to see that the the gospel is not folly. He stirs your affections for Jesus. He not only gave us the fix in Jesus, he applied it to our account. This is unimaginable grace, church. He created you. He fixed what we broke. He awakened your heart to believe, and he is coming back again. We can't make the world right. There are not enough hours in the day for us to fix all that's broken. And even if there were enough hours, we aren't strong enough to actually make it happen. But God can, and he will. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. He will come back to make the broken new. He will come back to make a new heavens and a new earth and reign on the new earth like it should have been. And he knows that. He knows it in intimate detail how and when and where and what all of that will look like and all that it will accomplish. And in his mind, it's happening right now and right now and right now and right now. Every part of your salvation, every part of the hope that you have for a future, it was God. God did it. God did it. I'm not a very good golfer. I'm not going to win any golf tournaments anytime in the near future, trust me. But one thing that I do enjoy is a good Florida scramble. And if you don't know what a Florida scramble is, it's like being really bad at golf, but having a couple buddies who are good at golf so you can feel like you're good at golf because you hit and then everybody just takes the best shot. So if I slice it into the woods or the water or the sand, it doesn't matter. I just go get it. And then I put it where the good shot was. And then like once in a round, I maybe make a good putt or like by God's grace, maybe one good drive or something. It's like, all right, I contributed to the team. I rocked it out. We can win this tournament. I have won one golf tournament and it was a Florida scramble, but I probably contributed one shot to the whole thing. You don't even bring one shot to the table. God created, not because he needed to, not because he was incomplete without creation, but because he wanted to. It was all about what God wanted. He wanted to delight in your praise. He wanted to delight in you giving him glory. He wanted to delight in a close relationship with you. He wanted to give you the fullness of joy when you approach him. We don't have to run from him. 
We don't have to hide from him. We don't have to doubt him. We don't have to know better than him. We can abide in him. We can trust in him. We can rest in him. The extent that he went to do something that he didn't need. To make right something that he didn't break which results in a relationship with you should prove decisively that your God is trustworthy. This should elevate the grace of God in your mind in a whole new way. It's eternal. It's constant. It's redeeming grace. He did it all, every step to bring us to him for him to gain nothing. Because he is self-existent. He has all that he needs. And yet he chooses to delight in our glory. Not because he needs to, but because he wants to. It was his grace at the start. His grace in the middle. His grace at the end. This is the theology of an eternal, self-existent, creating God. This should impact your tomorrow. You need to think deeply about who God is. You need to see, he he didn't need to do anything that he did, and yet he still did. I need to trust him. I can trust him. I can rest in him. The, The fears of this world shouldn't stir my heart. He is seeing the end right now, church. He knows it. He's intimately planning it. I can rest in him. The doubts of, is God going to come through? Of course he's going to come through. He's already coming through in his mind. You can trust him. You can rest in him. He has decisively proved it for you. I pray that that impacts our tomorrow. Let's pray. God, you are so much higher, so much bigger, so much mightier than we ever give you credit for. It's so often that in in our hearts and our minds, we doubt and we struggle with fear and worry and trust. We struggle to think that you're going to come through. We struggle to trust your timing. It's because we're making much of ourselves and we're minimizing who you are. God, I pray that the truth of Genesis 1, that you are a self-existent, eternal God who is still personal to us, would penetrate our hearts. I pray that it would change the way that we live and think and move tomorrow. God, that it would impact us that we could face the circumstances that surround us as we walk out of these walls and we can say, you know what? I can trust that God is working all things for his glory and my good. He's proved it. He's proved it in the cross. He's proved it just because of who he is and how he's chosen to function. May that be a truth that deeply penetrates our hearts, that we see the grace of God that we are impacted deeply by this grace that is mind-blowing grace. 
It was all you. It's always been you. Help us rest in that today. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray.